happen. So obviously we've been in the book of Acts. Obviously this is a history book. Obviously Luke, empowered by the Holy Spirit, wrote this letter some 2,000 years ago. Plus or minus. 2,000 years ago. And last week we took a look at, at Peter's first sermon, which means it was the church's first sermon. Do you remember what we said about that sermon last week? We, it was kind of at the end of our time last week. It was a model sermon. And what made Peter's first sermon to the church? Uh, by the way, how many people were in this church at the time? 120 people when he stood up to preach. So a church about twice the size of ours, right? I mean, roughly. If you take an average Sunday attendance. <laughs> and he stood up and he preached and it was a model sermon. What made it, what made it a model sermon? He preached Christ. He preached the gospel. And what he preached was the authenticity of who Jesus is. Because he was preaching to a crowd. Remember, there was a crowd. We don't know how many, but there was a lot of folks there. Because we know they heard. So the 120 were there, but there was more than 120. We don't know how many. A lot. He taught the authenticity of Jesus. He taught... What else did he teach? The crucifixion. The resurrection. The resurrection. His glorification. He covered the full gamut of Christ. He's introducing Jesus to this crowd, a lot, in fact, most of whom were Jews because they were there in Jerusalem during the, the, the harvest festival. So a lot of people were in town. It was the Ojai day of the day. <laughs> and so there they were. And... There's another couple of things that were pretty important about that model sermon. Three things that I that I noted. Number one, it was simple. Peter had a tendency to be the kind of guy that spoke before he thought. He just did. And then, filled with the Spirit, filled with the Spirit and empowered by the Spirit, which is the same Spirit that fills and empowers each of us. Amazing, isn't it? Because we tend to look back and lift these people up, don't we? No. These these are historical, biblical characters, real people that were filled with the same Spirit that fills you and I. That's a powerful truth, a true truth, as we're learning about about Scripture. But his sermon was simple, and it is what we would say, biblical. We could say it was biblical at the time that he preached it because he did use the Old Testament, didn't he? The New Testament wasn't written yet. It wasn't written yet. But it was simple, 
It was biblical and it was Christ-centered. So, he taught Christ simply, biblically, to this large group of people. And that becomes pretty important because of what he is going to tell us next that happened after this sermon took place. Because this is the beginning of the church. This is the first sermon. This is in the first century. Christ had ascended, and we don't know how many, we don't know what the period of time was from Christ's ascension to this very first sermon. We don't know, but we know know exactly what the first order of business was for the early church. What did the first church do immediately? Before they prayed, they obeyed. That's the first thing they did. Jesus ascended, and before he left, he said, I want you to go where? And wait. And that's exactly what they did. I think we need to be reminded of that every day. <coughs> that obedience was the first. Why did God tell us that the, the first act of the church was obedience? Yeah, because it was so important. Because he knew that we would wander. We're a wandering people. <coughs> We're a wandering people sometimes. And he wanted to make sure that we understood just it's the obedience that was the most important thing that started the church. So we don't want to lose sight of that, do we? So he teaches this sermon and he uses the Old Testament reference that the Jews in the crowd would have been very familiar with, right? Mm -hmm. Most of them. And I think it was powerful. He was speaking with power, right? And how can we say that he was speaking with power? Amen. Filled with the Spirit. The power of the Spirit of the living God in him. And, and, and we have some of his, his message here. I'm amazed at this because Luke wrote this down. Because I'm pretty sure that Peter didn't have sermon notes. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that he didn't have a scribe or he himself didn't write it all down like a lot of preachers today. You know, you can go online and read, read sermons from, from preachers and it's, it's, it's not uncommon um, that, that you can do that. But I'm pretty sure Peter didn't do that. I'm pretty sure he didn't do that. So he preaches this powerful message that ends up in verse 36 of chapter 2. He says, therefore, the therefore is everything he's just told them about Christ, his life, his crucifixion, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension in glorification. He's He's just taught them about Christ. Because remember, the Jews... Who were the Jews looking for and waiting for at this time? Their Messiah. And the Messiah had come and they had missed him. Because they were looking for the wrong person. They were looking for the wrong... They had the wrong idea. They they got the whole thing wrong. Because mostly it was about them. Oh, that should be powerful for us too, huh? Yeah, they missed it because it was about them. When it's about I, me, and my... We miss pretty much all the spiritual things for in our life, don't we? Yeah. 
Because that's fleshly and worldly, isn't it? So he ends up this sermon. He says, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now we zoom into verse 37 in Acts. In fact, would somebody read verse 37 through 41? Susan, I always like you to read because you got the 1984 NIV and I know that. So. Yes, chapter 2, verses 37 through 41. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Wow. What was the immediate result of Peter's very first Christian church service? 3,000 came to Christ. Growth came out of obedience. Growth came out of obedience. Wow. How did that happen? Moving of the Holy Spirit. A moving of the Holy Spirit. And what did the Holy Spirit do immediately after he said, Therefore, Israel, a lot of Jews in the crowd. See, I believe that there were thousands of people there. Because 3,000 came to Christ. So there had to have been thousands that were there that didn't. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. So, But we don't know. But I think about those kinds of things, you know. No PA system. I'm not sure exactly where they were, probably outdoors. And somehow or another, Peter's voice projected out and thousands of people heard him. Oh, you tell me. How could that happen? The Holy Spirit. Yeah. God directed the whole thing and somehow amplified his voice in such a way that they heard. Or he, or he somehow modified the way normal people hear so that they can hear. I mean, with God, all things are possible, right? So we don't know, but it's a pretty miraculous thing in any event. Supernatural, right? Well, that so, was the way with Christ. He, when he preached to the multitudes, I mean, so it wasn't anything new as far as that goes. And the crazy thing is that you would think on that one issue alone with Jesus who was just preached, who they knew spoke to multitudes on the mountainsides, and they all heard him. And Peter now speaking to thousands with this sermon that is preaching Christ, and they're all hearing him. I would think that one of the first questions for a skeptic would be, how is this possible that we hear him? Yeah. Now, I don't know. I wasn't there, but... I mean, that's a supernatural event. Signs and wonders, the Bible says, that the apostles had lots of signs. Here's one of them. The very first sermon. There's one of them. But what, what happened to these people? What, what was it that happened to them when they heard this sermon? They repented and were baptized. And before that... They asked, what shall we do? And before they even asked that. <laughs> they got, they got convicted. They're convicted, that's the word. Okay. 
So it says they were cut to the heart. You ever wonder where sayings come from? <laughs> cut to the chase, cut to the heart. Sharper than a double-edged sword. Yeah. I, I love how many biblical terms are used in culture even today. But, but, but Luke says that when the people heard this in verse 37, he said when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Comment? How did that happen? Holy Spirit. Oh, Holy Spirit. There is such incredible power that is happening at this point in time with this very first sermon to these thousands of people that are listening to just old, little old Peter. Little old, I'm going to deny Jesus every time somebody asks me about him. Peter. Little old Peter that sticks his foot in his mouth almost every time somebody asks him anything and gets it wrong. Little old Peter and... And here he is preaching the very first sermon. God chose to use him. The, probably the most unlikely of all of them. Yep. And he chooses, God chooses. I'm so incredibly grateful for um, that misfit to be used that way because it gives me encouragement. Mm-hmm. I don't know about you. Mm-hmm. We should be encouraged that God would pick the least likely. He was the least likely. So they were cut to the heart. That's conviction. Then they said, what shall we do? But what does cut to the heart mean? It, they finally realized who Christ was, and I mean, their eyes got opened, and it just hit home finally, and they repented. Hmm. Yeah. Why do you think he chose to use that term, cut to the heart? Okay. That's that's a good thought. That's a good thought. Because you know, I like words, so I had to look up that term in the Greek. (laughs) Well, didn't they used to think the soul was in the heart to begin with? So Mm -hmm. that has... Well, you know, it says there's a father cut... um, Guard your heart with all diligence from it so the well springs of life. Mm-hmm. And so they probably had the Old Testament down with that scripture. Amen. Similar. Amen. Yeah. See, I think that they understood this cutting to the heart concept because in the, in the Greek, by definition, that word or that term being cut to the heart meant being what it says. Pierced or stabbed or to feel sharp pain. They were pained by what they were hearing here. Another supernatural thing. They were pained. You said conviction. What else might they have been feeling emotionally? Regret. Regret? They hear Jesus is in there and they turn their back on him. Yeah. And what else might they have been feeling? Guilt. 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 Probably because in verse 36, he said, therefore, therefore, because of all this stuff, I just told you in my very first sermon that God used me, this misfit that I am, to to talk to you about. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified. Ooh, that's powerful. He made that Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. You see, there's the Messiah. But remember, guys, thousands of you Jews out here, remember, you guys had a hand in this. Mm -hmm. He's calling them out. He was just speaking the truth. 
I, I think it was the truth in love, but he was just speaking the truth. It's okay to speak the truth. Sometimes the truth is uncomfortable. Most of the time, I think it is. Ooh. Especially if there's conviction, remorse, and guilt. Okay. Right? So, so they might have been feeling guilt as part of that being cut to the heart. Hmm. Why? Guilt. Guilt. You see, they were trying to figure out because who was he speaking to mostly here? Jews. And what kind of Jews were they? Well, which, what kind of people? There's only two kind of people in the world. Most of them were unbelievers. Unbelievers, that's right. There's believers and unbelievers. You can categorize them any way you want. <laughs> Ethnically or any other way. But you, you either believe or you don't. And he's speaking to a lot of believers. The, belief, the unbelievers were the ones that were cut to the heart, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, of course they were. You know, they, they, they were convicted, some of them. Some of them had remorse because, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, you're right. We did have a hand in this Jesus. Because what we traded Jesus in for that... For Barabbas, we traded him in. And you're telling me, Peter, that that's the Messiah? Oh my gosh, can you imagine what that truth must have felt like to them? Even though they didn't really have anything directly, personally involved in making the decisions, they did indirectly, didn't they? They did indirectly. Boy, that's, that's more powerful stuff. So they, so they asked this question, which is... What? Yeah. I love that now what question. So what do we do? What shall we do? Does that remind you of anybody else that asked that question in biblically? There was somebody else that was really important biblically that wrote a lot of the New Testament that had that same exact question using the same exact Greek terminology and words and it was Paul on the road to Damascus when he had an encounter with Jesus this manifestation of Jesus glorified ascended but there he was with Paul There's so much supernaturalness going on in this in this book that we call the Bible isn't there it's awesome so he had this same question and he was confronted convicted guilty all con- he was all of these emotions and there he is and he now is a believer because there's Jesus and he says what shall I do after Jesus told him he had quit persecuting my church what shall I do then because Paul didn't know anything else did these people know anything else It's like, it's like most unbelievers. They might even have heard or been aware of Christ as Lord. But it never really meant anything to them. So when it became apparent to Paul on the road to Damascus and to these people after this very first sermon, they said, ah, I get it, but I don't know what to do. <laughs> have you ever asked yourself that question? Have you ever asked God that question? I hope so. I, I hope it's a regular question for us. God, what shall I do? Because as soon as we think, think, 
that we got the answers, as soon as we think we got this all figured out, I think we got a problem. Because we can't in our strength. Oh, but as soon as I got it figured out, when I immediately come with an answer, I always ask myself a question. Is that of the Lord or is that just of me? <laughs> I always want to, you know, because the answer comes really easy. And so it can be either way. Sometimes it comes really easy and it's of the Lord. Sometimes it comes really easy and it's just what I want to do. But they were asking that, so now what shall we do? So look at Peter's response to that simple question. What does he say? Okay, somebody read the entire verse. Verse 38. Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all who the Lord our God will call. And man, do we ever need to focus on verse 38, where Peter replied to that very simple question, because we got to take a look at the application for today, too, don't we? The question was, what shall we do? The, the and, and the nature of their question was, what shall we do with this truth that you've now told us that we, I actually see this maybe for the very first time I see this truth, so what shall I do? It's like you're saying, how do I fix this? Uh, yeah. mm-hmm. how, do, how, do I, how do I fix this? What shall we? <laughs> that's church. Church wants to, you, will you just give me the ten points? I'll do them. I love that because, the, and that's, we live there as people, don't we? Will you just, don't make me figure it out for myself. It's too hard. Just tell me what to do. So he did. He totally did. Just repent and be baptized. Every one of you. Now, there is a load going on in, in, these, in these couple of sentences here. A load. So, what's your answer today, by the way, if somebody asks you, what do you do? What if you're having that conversation with somebody, and just, just because of who you are, and you're just being who you are, and they, they look at you and say, you're, you're a Christian? That's the a, that's a Jesus thing, isn't it? Wow. I like what I, I see. What, what should I do? You still say the same thing. It hasn't changed. It hasn't changed. That's the answer. If somebody asks you, what should, I, what should I do? There's the answer. Wes, it's simple, isn't it? It's simple. <laughs> it's written right here. It's written right here for us. In the very first sermon, the very first church was just obedient. The next thing is God used the least likely of the twelve to preach the very first sermon. And when he got all done, he gave them a dose of truth by telling them that, listen, Jews, you, here's what, this is what happened. And you guys had a part in that. And then a bunch of them said, really? You're right. That's true. What should I do? Simple. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But that is a loaded response. Because I think we need to know more... It's important to understand, what does that mean? Because then, that's very churchy, isn't it? And everybody sitting in here gets it, don't we? But what about the person that's maybe for the first time heard this? That pagan that walked in sitting in the back, he's right back there, I see him, he's sitting in the back row. There he is, and he's, his eyes are like this big, and he's trying to figure out what, A, first of all, repent, 
What does that mean? You churchy people know what it means, but what does the guy sitting in the back row that just walked in here off of Ola Avenue, what is he thinking? What do you mean repent? Well, we know what repent means. So if somebody asks you, what does repent mean, what do you tell them? Turn from sin. Turn from sin. Flip around the other way. Do a shift. Change your mind. Because you see, when somebody is already interested, that's what these people were. What should we do? He said, just change your mind. Change your mind. What do you mean change my mind? Whatever you were thinking, think the opposite of that now. (laughs) That's a good place to start. That's a good place to start. He says, repent. What, What isn't repent? You talked about conviction, and then you talked about you talked about there's guilt. There was another word that was used. I mean... Well, it isn't just remorse. Okay, it isn't just remorse. Because what is remorse? Well, you're just sorry, but you're not going to change. Ah, I love it. You see, when somebody's... Well, if somebody's remorseful about, about their life, you know, oh man, I mean... Virtually everybody knows because we're built with that moral gauge. We have a moral gauge, every single one of us. It's in there. God put it in, whether you believe or not. And so there are those. You're talking to a brand new believer that has been really like living, I mean, like living the life. You know what I mean? And and they come to, they're, they're coming to terms with it because they just don't want to do that anymore. They're miserable. And you talk to them and they're, they're remorseful. But what aren't they? They're not repentant. Because remorse is an emotion that isn't associated with any action. And repenting means you've got to take action. That's what changing your mind means. Change your mind means now you've got to do something about it. That's, that's true repentance, isn't it? Because who was remorseful in the Bible? Had a direct relationship with Jesus Christ himself. Judas. Judas was remorseful. What did he do? He hung himself. Because of his remorse. All Judas needed to do was repent. If he repented, repent and be baptized. Repent, change your mind, Judas. I know you messed up, man. But you don't need to go hang yourself. That's why Christ came. Not so that you would be remorseful, so that you would be repentant. (laughs) Once you heard the truth. Ah. It's an easy explanation if somebody asks the question. But we really need to understand this pretty simple doctrine because there's a ton of doctrine in this in this sentence here. Mm-hmm. Repent these two sentences. Repent and be baptized. There's a there's a ton in there. So what about being baptized? Because Bob's sitting right back there and I'm he's looking at me right now. He's saying, Okay, I got the repent thing, it's not remorse. I get it, okay? And be baptized? What does that mean? Yeah. Oh come on, church people, you've been in church a long time. What does be baptized mean? It's an outward sign. Okay. Of what? The washing of our sins. Mm. It's an outward sign to those around us of who we are in Christ. Interesting. That's 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 all true. And it's it's all true. Very churchy. Isn't it? You mean your plain language? Well, Transport yourself 2,000 years back now and consider that you are one of the 120 and you're filled with the Spirit. And, and Bob 
is sitting back here, and he's a Jew. And you say, repent. And he says, what's that? And you just explained it to him. Then you say, be baptized. Ah, Bob's a Jew. Does Bob know about baptism? No. You sure? Ah. Well, if he doesn't, if he's a good Jew, he does. Let's say that he was a Gentile and converted to a Jew. Does he know about baptism? He would. And the reason that he would is because baptism was a Jewish ritual for those that were converted, not Jews by birth. Interesting, isn't it? So now, he said, see, because we get caught up oftentimes, and that's what I like about a, an expositional type of a study here, is we can go through the words and make sure that we know what they mean. So it, it makes it easier for us to explain it to somebody. Because if somebody doesn't know what baptism is, we can give them the church answer, or we can, which, is, which is true. But we gotta, we got to make it even more simple, don't we? Because that's what Peter did here. He just made it simple. So now we have to make the word simple because baptism in the Greek simply means to dip or to dunk or to cleanse or to wash. Ooh, that's interesting. But it doesn't mean sprinkle. No. <laughs> well, in the Strong's, I have a Strong's concordance that has a Greek and a Hebrew dictionary. The word baptize in the Greek means to dip under, immerse, sink, bathe, or wash. That's what the word baptize means. So a Jew 2,000 years ago that would have been a, a convert, for example, that was a Gentile and he converted to Judaism, he would have gone through a ritual. The ritual was called baptism. They would have been in a baptismal, or in probably in the in the river, okay, but probably in the river, and they would have been completely immersed. Interesting, a Jewish, this is Jewish. They would have been immersed as a sign that they were included in with the Jews. See, a Jew would have understood this, especially a converted Jew. A secular Jew, maybe not so much. A Jew that was born into Judaism that, that wasn't active in Jewish tradition might not have understood. But a converted Jew would have understood this. So what does baptism, baptism symbolize? Diana, you, you said it earlier. What does it symbolize? We're washed from our sins. Washed of our sins. Just like that's what Christ did for us on the cross. Exactly right. What we see here is we see repent, which is change your mind. Right? Change. Go the other direction. Change your mind. And baptism symbolizes the outward symbol or expression of that inward decision that you made. And you're just going public. <laughs> I'm going public. Because we see here, when we read this just a minute ago, that 3,000 people did it that day. Are you kidding me? They heard the truth. They asked, what do we do? Peter told them, and they did it. What was the first act of the 3,000 people that came to Christ on that very first day of the very first sermon that took place in the very first Christian church? But what, what does that mean? What did they, and, and they accepted, and they were told when they were... They were obedient. <laughs> Is there a theme here or what? 
There's a theme, isn't there? Obedience, obedience, obedience. And I'm telling you, there was one heck of a party this day. They had to have been. There were people that were filled with the Spirit. The Holy Spirit came on those 3,000 people. This was a Spirit-filled place. It was like we would say in my generation, this place was rocking and rolling. <laughs> yeah. My wife would say, you holy rollers, you. <laughs> that's what she calls me. She doesn't have a clue. But that's okay. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't mean that. I mean in terms of what does a, what does a rocking and rolling Christian look like. <laughs> Sorry, honey. Okay. Having said that, they were baptized. We know what the symbolism is for baptism. And we know that this New Testament baptism took place starting in the first century, right? And we know that the Jews that came to Christ, many of these 3,000, we don't know how many, many, I would suggest to you the vast majority of these 3,000 people that accepted Christ this day were Jews. Because they were in Jerusalem for the festival. There weren't, there weren't a lot of other people there. Because those crazy Jews were in town. <laughs> you know? I mean, there were lots of them. And so, but the Jews were interested, weren't they? Well, these people were quite religious folks, I would, I would venture to guess. And they heard the truth and they responded out of obedience and they, they repented and they got baptized. And, and so they understood that baptism was a Jewish ritual. They already understood that. That was a no-brainer for them. And so in the very first century, just like the 21st century, this baptism that is symbolic of this cleansing, right? And it's an outward expression of an inward decision that I've already made, right? They did it that day. That day. Did you hear that? They did it that day. <laughs> they were lit up. They were yeah. These people were lit up and obedient. And so, with that, what does the baptism, the very first baptism in the very first church service, in the very first Christian church after the very first sermon, what did it mean for those 3,000 people besides the symbolic nature of it that we've already discussed? What did it mean for them to be baptized on that day? Remember, there were 120 believers. Clearly a huge transition for them. Supernatural? Oh, yeah. But Bill, I'm confused elsewhere in scripture that there's the order gets changed in scripture and so in some sometimes <coughs> baptism comes much later <coughs> sometimes the baptism came first and the and the spirit came later sometimes the spirit came first and the baptism came later and boy now we have a discussion about denominational differences in terms of doctrine don't we <laughs> but what we see here is we see and we're just going through this book because it's a history book and we can't change history. 
People like to do that these days. But we can't change history because it, it is written. And Luke tells us historically accurately that these people heard the sermon, they asked the question, they were given the simple answer, they believed, they, and they were obedient to what they were told. Repent and be baptized. Did they understand everything? No. Of course not. I don't understand everything. <laughs> I certainly didn't when I was baptized, when I first believed. Yeah. I didn't understand anything. I mean, only enough. I just understood enough. So, but I, I want to make a point here because there were 3,000 that came to Christ that day. There were 3,000. The church exploded that day. There were 3,000 that were baptized that day. There were 3,000 that understood that baptism was an immersion into water. They didn't have a problem with that at all because there was some Jewish tradition associated with it. So they would have been much more familiar than we are today about that. Okay? And now there's this Christian thing that still has the baptism thing. See, they were still Jews. You know, Jesus was a Jew. These people were Jews. But now they're what we would call Messianic Jews. They came to Christ. They didn't lose their Jewishness. They didn't lose the traditions. They understood the traditions of the, of, 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 of the Jewish uh, uh, religion, the Jewish faith, the Jewish traditions, the, all that stuff. They understood that. But they were baptized. And I, and I want to drive this home because this becomes very important because baptism is absolutely, the Christian identification with baptism biblically is an outward expression of an inward change and you're just you're just expressing it it's like a yahoo moment okay but in the very first baptism what else did it represent for them you're on the right path they were jews well they were they were accepting christ as being a that's it so what happened was the baptism became their identification with Christ, you see. They became in, you see, because that's what the Jewish baptismal rite was about. The Jewish baptismal rite in being immersed in water was a Gentile that wasn't born into Judaism. Because you were either born in or you were converted in. There's only two ways to become a Jew. And the ones that were converted in as Gentiles were baptized into. That becomes important. They were then identified as a Jew. I find it fascinating that we know and understand the biblical basis for baptism, but we can't miss the other point. This public declaration has some significance individually and corporately. Because this public declaration, what, what's happening with this public declaration? Sure, it's very symbolic, but it's also very practical, isn't it? Because traditionally, they were baptized into. That becomes important in just a minute. Who was supposed to be baptized? Peter gave him some. <coughs> Pardon me? Those who repented. Okay. And, and so when those that were repentant, they asked the question, what do we do? And, and who did he speak to? Verse 38. Everyone who repented. 
Every single one of them. <laughs> Without exception. How many people were there listening to the sermon? At least 3,000. If 100% that listened came to Christ, there was at least 3,000 or so there. I got to believe because I, we're not told, but I got to believe that there was a lot more than 3,000 there. So he said, every one of you, the ones that asked the question, what should we do? Well, every single one of you. Do you see the significance there? See, it's loaded. This sentence is loaded because he's telling them to be obedient. He said, so every one of you are the ones that should repent and be baptized. I think that's fascinating because now we zoom forward a couple of thousand years and how do different churches view baptism? Some necessary for salvation, would you say, Sally? When you join a church, you have to be baptized. When you join a church, you've got to be baptized in some churches into that church. Yeah. Some people say that you're not saved unless you're baptized. I think that's fascinating. And, there, and we could go into a whole study on that. It's very fascinating. But what Peter said here was simple. If you hear the truth and you ask the question because you're convicted... Not remorseful, but convicted. Oh my gosh, it's true. What should I do? Well, repent and be baptized. Every single one of you that is asking that question, just repent and be baptized. How are they to be baptized? Another loaded command. Do you see? It's simple, but powerful. Every one of you be baptized. How? In the name of Jesus Christ. Wow. Why? Pardon me? That's the what. What about the why? Why do why did he tell them that they need to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ? What does the name of Jesus Christ have to do with it? <laughs> That's the right answer. It has everything to do with it. But on what basis is Peter telling them that they need to repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ? Why did he add that? Why didn't he just say, be baptized? Because Jesus, okay, keep going down that road, because Jesus is the only one. That, yeah, because I can't, you can't, nobody else can't. The apostles couldn't, Peter couldn't. Okay. So what does that mean? Well, by saying that, also it took the focus off Peter. And did what? And put it on the Christ. Okay, Christ continually being preached. There's another theme in Christianity. There's this Jesus thing that we get to deal with all the time. It's over and over and over again, isn't it? I love that. In the name of Jesus Christ. What else could he have said? Anything. Anything. But he didn't. He said in the name of Jesus Christ. We still haven't hit on what's the most important element of why it is being repenting and being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. When you're in church, you see baptismal action up here? People get baptized. And what is it that, that whoever's doing the, the baptizing, what is it that they say? Father, the Son, Jesus Christ. 
you're both onto it. But there's a very important word that we need to, that we need to use here based on the fact that you need to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Because uh, authority. Yes, because Jesus is authentic. You see, he is the only and every that is authentic, biblically speaking. You see, because can you get baptized not in the name of Jesus Christ? Of course, it happens all the time. So what is the value and what is what is the result of being baptized not in the name of Jesus Christ? Wasn't that what John the Baptist did? Didn't he baptize in the water? What did John the Baptist say that he came to do? The, the baptism of the baptism of what? The Holy Spirit. Uh, the baptism of water. A repentance. Yeah. That's true. See, he was the foreshadow of what was to come. <laughs> That's why John came. Talk about another interesting character. <laughs> Looked like he was right out of Woodstock, probably, except for the I mean, you know, wearing weird clothes. But he was an interesting character, and he came saying, "I'm not even worthy, man. I can't. I can't." Ooh, he didn't. He set himself so far away from Jesus Christ, and yet God sent him as a foreshadow of being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. You see, it's about the authority of Christ Jesus, and this it's the same. It's the same Jesus that Peter had been preaching. He just got finished preaching Jesus. And he said, you've got to be baptized. You've got to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus because that's the authority on which the baptism can even take place. Without that authority, your baptism is meaningless. What did that mean to the first century Jew that had been converted from being a Gentile into being a Jew? Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ because they had already been baptized into Judaism. But what was different? Remember, there's thousands of Jews here. And he's telling them to be, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. After they said, what do we do? Because he was the Messiah. Because he was the Messiah. But what was the difference between their previous baptism into Judaism? There was forgiveness of sins for this one. There was forgiveness of sins for this one. And what else? Keep going. You're on the right track. The Holy Spirit. It, okay, and keep going. Exactly right. All <laughs> truths. Every one of those things is absolutely yeah. true. Because Jesus did all the sacrificing. He was the fulfillment of the law and he was the final and ultimate sacrifice that needed to take place. Of course, they didn't get that because the early church still went to the temple and did sacrifices. until It took a while to wind that down. It didn't just stop overnight. Christians still went to the temple and did sacrifices for a while, okay, until God is so patient with us, he slowly pulls us out of some of those old habits, doesn't he? But, but they were baptized, they were dunked, they were immersed, they were identified as Jews without the authority of the Messiah. And that's the point, you see, because as we look at the first century and we see how these people... Uh, lived and what they believed, it becomes important for us because we got to reel this thing all the way up 20-some centuries later, don't we? <laughs> and we got to look at what does it mean for us? What's the application for us? So when somebody asks you and you tell them, it's pretty simple, Wes. <laughs> Repent. <laughs> Repent. Right? And, and, and then what? 
Be baptized. How do I do that? In the name of Jesus Christ. On which there is the only name that has the authority for you to be baptized into the family of God, the kingdom of God. And too, Bill, wouldn't it mean something to them since he fulfilled the law? Wouldn't that have meant something to them because they were all about the Old Testament? New Testament had not come yet? Absolutely. And they had, they had just heard it from Peter. See, they just heard this truth in a simple way. But, you see, their, their Jewishness made it so complicated. Because how many laws were they trying to abide by to be good enough? 615. I would have to... You know the quarterbacks? They have that little thing and they pull it open like that and they're looking at the plays and all that kind of stuff. I'd have to have one up both arms and legs to try to even remember the 615 laws. I can't walk this far on the Sabbath, but I can do that. I can do... What? You see, but that's the li- that's where they lived. But don't forget, you know, unbelievers today are still living under that kind of burden. It's bondage. They're in bondage. You pick something. They're in bondage to something. Okay? Sex, drugs, rock and roll. <laughs> okay, that, that's... There's three. Uh, there's, there's probably 613 more. But you get it? Very important because we're talking about the history. See, the, the, the reason we got to slam this hard is because we, we're talking about the history. This is our church. <laughs> and because we are the church. When we understand the history, we can really begin to simplify it. It's just not that complicated. You preach the gospel, use words if you have to, and if somebody says, well, boy, I get it. What do I do now? Oh, well, repent. What does that mean? Well, turn around. If you're in bondage, man. I'm telling you. I don't get that. Don't worry. Trust me, you're in bondage or you wouldn't have asked the question. So repent. Be baptized. Baptized? Oh, yeah. Declare to the world that Jesus Christ is Lord. No matter how much you understand, it's okay. You don't have to be a theologian. You wouldn't have asked the question if you weren't ready. Just be baptized. You can do it today. When there's an altar call, the baptismal ought to be warmed up. <laughs> i got to talk to Pastor Richie about that we ought to have that thing lit up every week if somebody wants to come to Christ but we all in the church today in your own way the way you know how sitting right where you're sitting just ask the Lord you know come to Christ right now there's nothing wrong with that but that's not the model in the first century church in the first century church they got them up and put them in the tank that's what they did it was a declaration. Now, it was a very supernatural thing, and we've got to understand it's a slightly different dispensation, a different time. The Holy Spirit was working a little bit differently than the same power, same spirit, working a little bit differently through different people for a different reason at a different time at a different place. But the similarities are clearly there. It's our history. And so they said that you should do this because if you're baptized without the authority of Jesus Christ, you're not baptized. Amen? You're not baptized. So, then he says something really, really critical. The next five words, which are, you should be baptized. Why? For Well, but what does is, what is verse 38 say? The actual words. Yes. You, no, no, you're absolutely right. For the forgiveness of sins. For the forgiveness of your sins. spending a lot of time on one sentence here because it's powerful and important. 
If I asked you what the most important word is in that, in those one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, five, there's six words there for the forgiveness of your sins. Do all this stuff, he says, for the forgiveness of your sins. What's the most important word there? Forgive, forgiveness. Okay, I struck out. I, I like those questions. Okay, let's think about it. That's a critical word, right? What word? Forgiveness. Yeah. Yeah. That's the whole point. He's telling them that will take your burden, that burden that you're dragging around with you. You're so far away from God, you can be forgiven just like that. And when you ask for that forgiveness, it's gone. God will never remember no more as far as the east is from the west. The Bible says. Hallelujah. Somehow or another, God will never remember everything that I ask for forgiveness. I mean, that's amazing, isn't it? But that's not the most important word there. It is an important one. Let's think about it in terms of doctrine. Is doctrine important? You see, because we talked about speaking in tongues the other day, and there's nothing wrong with speaking in tongues. We said it's not very, it's not normative, but God clearly today, Ernie could speak in tongues and it would be totally fine if it were biblical. And there was an interpretation and it was edifying and there were unbelievers here for the benefit of them. Fine, that could happen. Now, we're talking about repenting, being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for circled word for for the forgiveness of your sins. Why is the word for so important from a doctrinal point of view? Because we just said that baptism, if it's not within the authority of Jesus Christ, if you're not baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, then your baptism is meaningless. There's no authority behind it. You can get baptized all day, but there's there's no authority behind it. So if you're going to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, come on, church. That's the point, isn't it? It's because your sins are forgiven. We don't have to carry that burden around anymore. But the four, we can't overlook. And here's why. Well, Steve, you know why I answered it wrong? My Bible doesn't have four. Ah. <laughs> Otherwise, I would have got it. I should have asked the question. Mine says so that. Oh, so that. The NIV says so that. Okay, so the NIV says so that. Um, and says four. Yeah. Yours says four? Yours probably says 1984. Oh, you're the 84? Well, you have to have the 84 NIV, don't you? Are you sure you're not in the NASB? Come on, Marvin. I don't know what year it is. It was given to me by See, the one of the challenges that we have... Yeah, is this is a 78. 78 NIV? 73 oh. or 78. Well, the point is, what does yours say? Not four, it says... So that. So that. Is so that the same as for? Yeah. Okay. Let's just establish that so that is the same as the word for. Yeah. For the forgiveness of your sin of, of your sins. So it what it doesn't mean is this. Because here's what we have to deal with as we zoom forward, because part of the study that we have to do it means application. And there's lots of churches that believe lots of different things, and because interpretation can is there's an art and science, right? To biblical interpretation. And most of the art and science for us that are that are uh, novice theologians. We would say, we're all novice, right? I'm not a professional theologian. I don't think anybody in this room is a professional, right? But so we're working through this, and God is revealing things to us and teaching us things. And so when we interpret Scripture, it needs to make sense. 
It needs to tie out to the whole of the rest of Scripture, right? It has to, okay? And there are some very simple rules of interpretation, and the word for becomes pretty important there because what it doesn't mean is it doesn't mean that you should be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ in order to have your sins forgiven. Because they're already forgiven. See, baptism... You've got to be careful because there are denominational differences. There are denominational differences and you have to be very careful because you can call out a denomination that would not interpret this correctly in some areas. This is an area where there is biblical truth and there is misguided interpretation for a particular outcome that somebody would want as opposed to what scripture says. So the point for this tonight is that the word for does not mean, in this case, which some people would believe it to mean, that it does not mean in order to have your sins forgiven and it does not mean that as a result of your baptism your sins will be forgiven. That forgiven part has already taken place and this is nothing more than a symbolic public declaration of the faith that you've already put in Christ alone. But some denominations would say, Sally, you pointed it out very clearly earlier on this evening, some denominations would say that you must be baptized into this church. Some would say that your baptism is a sign of your salvation. Mm -hmm. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? (laughs) Biblically speaking, salvation comes and then baptism. That's what we just saw here in the very first church. 3,000 people came to Christ from the 120 that were filled with the Spirit. And then those 3,000 people were not only filled with the Spirit, they believed. That's the first thing they did. They had to take action on the truth. They believed. Then, the next thing they did with that belief was they repented. That's also an action work. Then, the next thing they did after they repented was what? They were baptized as an act of obedience because that's what the church is all about. It's about obedience. If you love me, you'll do what I say. Because I know what's good for you, Jesus said. I, you know, I need to work harder at that every day. But, but they were being obedient. They were baptized in the authority of the name of Jesus Christ. And they were baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. It would be better viewed, Chuck Swindoll in the book that I'm reading on, 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 on his commentary on Acts. Um, he paraphrased it this way. If, if anybody asks you the question, I love what he wrote because it's, it's simple. Chuck Swindoll is a very simple guy. Chuck Swindoll says, repent. And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ in view of the fact that your sins have been forgiven. (laughs) Okay? I like the in view of. It's an act. So if you could zoom forward, how important is baptism? Today. As far as your salvation? No, just generally. How important is baptism? We know it's not essential. How important is it? Well, I think it's important because it should be public recognition. Public yeah. recognition. Public recognition. You think it's important because? Yeah, yeah obedience. Better oh, obedience. because of obedience. Because of sacrifice. Ah, because of obedience. Yeah. Lois said she thinks it's important from an obedience point of view. How many would agree with that? Boom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
That's everything about the first church. Everything I'm reading here in the first two chapters of Acts is about obedience, there's joy, there's salvation, there's, there's, I mean, this is pretty thrilling. If you, if you look at what's going on here, holy Toledo, I mean, this is like, uh, it would have been fun to be a bystander and just watch what was going on here. This was like crazy. People coming to Christ being filled with the Spirit. They're talking in other tongues and people are understanding. And only two or three are doing it at, the same, at, at any one time. And it was very orderly. And uh, there was miraculous signs and wonders that were going on here. And, I mean, 3,000 in one day. And then, think about this. There was 3,000 that came to Christ. And then they all got baptized. How did that happen? And who baptized them? Yeah, that's a good question. There was no church manual. <laughs> Okay, Tyler, you take those 500. Richie, you take those 750. How did they do that? That'd be a long process, too. Just but, supernatural. We're not told. We don't know. But they baptized 3,000 of them. God worked that out. Simply and miraculously. It's fascinating. And so then it says, and you will receive what? The gift of the Holy Spirit. That becomes pretty important. And so, this gift that they were going to be receiving was the result of what? Obedience. Obedience. Repenting. Obedience. Believing. Okay? And it is that promised gift that Jesus said. Remember, this is the same gift that he told the 120 about. I love this. I don't know how much time took place between when the 120 were obedient and said, oh, there goes Jesus up in the clouds. He's coming back the same way he left. And he told us to go to Jerusalem and wait. And that's exactly what they did. No questions asked. They didn't need theology. They didn't need doctrine. They didn't need the Bible. They didn't need a pastor. They didn't need nothing. They needed Jesus and obedience before the Holy Spirit. Boom, we're gone. 120 of them. These 3,000, exactly the same thing. I love that. Total obedience, and they did it right now. What's the difference in the church today with baptism? You say it's so important for obedience, and the whole first century church was all about obedience. What's the difference in the church today? Non-obedience. Pardon me? Not always obedience. We're very, we have lost obedience as one of the primary tenets of our faith. Yeah. <coughs> We've lost it from the pulpit. We've lost it in the pews. The pulpits are a little bit misty and the, and the pews are a little bit foggy <laughs> these days. And so what happens is, is that, you know, and it's the same spirit. That part hasn't changed. No, we go out society to dictate. Oh, the culture has infiltrated and we've made it so casual that it's all about Starbucks and entertainment. We can bring our coffee in and we don't even, we can, it's, it's, we, it's almost like we're, it's like a clicker. Uh, pastor, can I just zoom past this part? The, the, I don't like that part. Fast forward. No, but that's what we've done. I mean, that's what we've done. No, no I don't see any of that here. I see people just, they, these people were ripped up, man. They were excited, filled with the Spirit. Thousands were coming to Christ. We're going to see even more come later. I mean, there was, there was a lot going on here that was really, really good news. Any comments about church doctrine or theology or the application of, of, of in the church today about these things? Because the church is just getting started. 
Because we're going to get off of this in just a second, and we're going to see, starting in chapter 3, we're going to really zoom through some of these next chapters because we're going to see what actions God was doing through the apostles. It's going to be really exciting. You talk about signs and wonders. We're going to see people getting healed. We're going to see, we're going to see people doing what Jesus sent them out to do in the power of the Spirit that is way beyond anything that we can, that we can understand. Uh, we can read about it, and it's historical, right? But in chapter 3, we're going to see starting next week that, that people were, they were... Regular dudes, Wes, were going out and they were healing people in the power of the Spirit. Wow, man. We're talking about supernatural acts at the beginning of the church. So, why do we have doctrinal issues in the churches? Because we don't follow God's word. Because we want to do what we want to do. Hmm. Why do we have these doctrinal differences in the in the church today? If it's, I mean, we've all agreed here. It's pretty. It's pretty clear. It's not what we. It's not because we do it this way. It's 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 what Scripture says. I think success to some churches also means numbers. It's all about mm-hmm. numbers and entertainment. How do we increase our numbers? And it's it's earthly things and not heavenly things. Well, they're taught in seminary to you to treat church as a business. What? See church as a business? Yeah. Yeah, so it's yeah, all about some, some do. Some do. Some do. It's interesting because I was taught a long time ago not a biblical principle necessarily, but but a true life principle is that 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 uh, companies, families, uh, organizations, churches tend to take on the characteristics of its leadership. That's that's a that's a pretty that's uh, a, it's a generalization, but it, there's there's a lot of truth to that, isn't there? And so you see that denominationally, you see that within the context of a church. You can see a church that is just plain and oh, kind of kind of humdrum. And I, I will, if you see a church like that, I will I will show you a church where the leadership is maybe more serious, and they're just and there's nothing wrong with that. I'm just saying that that's their that's the nature of the of, of the vibe of the church. You'll see other churches that are just like on fire, you know. And some of that is denominational. The Pentecostals, for, I think, the Pentecostal churches where people are running around like chickens with their heads cut off, you know. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I'm just saying that that's that's the nature uh, of of their of their service. There's organs, there's pianos, there's drums, there's 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 all kinds of different styles, and 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 they take on the characteristics of the leadership. What was happening in the first church? Of Jesus, that's the key, and and that's the whole point. If we don't take anything home from chapter two, we gotta take home what has happened in the church when we take our eyes off of Jesus. You see, the first century was all about Jesus. He was with the boys for three and a half years, taught them everything they needed to know. The power of the Spirit came on them. They were filled, and they were supernaturally charged with building the church Jesus' way. Okay, It wasn't their way, and it's not our way if we're doing it right. It was Christ's way, and they were obedient. They were obedient to Jesus Christ. He was the teacher. He was the Messiah. He spent the time with them. He poured his life into the apostles. He told the 120 to go and be obedient. And they said, 
Not a problem. They didn't ask any questions. They didn't have a clue what was coming next. Not a clue. Most of them didn't even go to work Monday morning because they were sitting there waiting for what Jesus told them was coming next and they didn't even know what to expect. <laughs> I mean, get it? They didn't know. It was obedience. And it was all Jesus. And so what happens when it's your best life now, we've taken Jesus out of the equation, you see. Because it's not about your best life. My best life is coming later. I don't want to be too heavenly minded, but I like thinking about heaven. Because that's where I'm going to spend most of my life. This is but a myth. It's important, but it's a myth. And so, and so we've lost Jesus. He's now our best buddy. And that's not what we see in the first church, is it? Nor should we see it in this one. And the first time we see that in this one, we ought to be raising our hand. What happened to Jesus? Because we have the model, don't we, for the best, the best sermon ever preached, right here. The be- it was Christ. It's about Jesus. You see, and if our life isn't about Jesus, which is the point, then we've lost it. We've completely lost it. And so, what a shame that is, because this promise of the Holy Spirit was for who? Yeah. Yeah. Everyone. All is what he says. All. And by the way, how long did how long did Peter preach this message for the three thousand to come to repentance and salvation? We don't know. Probably longer than the three minutes it took us to read those verses, but but we we don't really know. And so um I, I just love the beginning of the church here because it's so simple. Style is one thing, but the substance is what's most important. Right, Betty? The substance is Jesus Christ. We put our faith in Him alone. And that's the point that Peter's making in the power of the Spirit. And that's how 3,000 at one time came to him and they believed and they were baptized and there was 3,000 of them and it went from 3,120 on that very first day to something that today, in the world today, there were there have been billions of, of Christians over the 2,000 years probably um, and I don't know how many Christians there are today, you know, people put numbers to it but quite frankly, I you know, I, I don't know who knows who's a Christian and who's not yeah. <laughs> There's evidence, you know, but I'm not going to say who's a believer and who's not a believer. That would be totally wrong of me or you or anybody else. That's between us and God. Our relationship is this way, always. Jesus first, Jesus first. This is our focus. When when this is happening right, you hear us around here saying that this this will happen automatically. Okay, this one is a little bit bumpy, <laughs> isn't it? couple of things that are important. We'll close with this. There were, there were three or four things important that were happening in the church here. 
because verse 42 says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And so when we see that, we see teaching and fellowship and uh, we see the breaking of bread and we see, we see prayer as the primary things that were happening in the church in the first century. What are the four things that should be the primary things that are happening in this church or any other church that is a Christ-centered church today? Same thing. Okay, so... Pardon me? Amen. And so the teaching was, the apostles did the teaching in the first century. Why? That's right. They had the Holy Spirit and they had the relationship with Jesus and they had all of his teaching for three and a half years. Man, he poured himself into those guys. And guess what? Through the power of the Spirit, those those 3,000 and more, they were listening because they didn't have this yet. There was a supernatural power that was going on there that we just don't quite understand. Even though we have the same spirit and the same power. God used it a little bit differently. So they were, they were poured into and they had Old Testament knowledge. And then, of course, we had the fellowship in the early church, which is what? Koinonia. We know that name, right? Koinonia is the, is the word in the Greek. And we see churches called koinonia because they're fellowship-oriented churches. And so what, what is koinonia? What, is, what does that mean? Because we use the word fellowship, but here we, we think about it in terms of fellowship hall, and we think about it in terms so of... They meet together. They meet together. Yeah. Okay? Yeah, because koinonia means partnership, participation, communion, all to a mutual benefit. Because we enjoy one another. <laughs> it's, it's mutual, isn't it? But they had everything in common. They had everything in common. Do we? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wrote this uh, down because I, I read it uh, recently from... Uh, some of you might, maybe even the ladies, because she's a lady author, um, uh, Ann Ortland. Mm-hmm. Okay. They came to the Baptist church years ago. Really? The Ortlands? Yeah. yeah. Um, she, uh, she's written several things. But check this out in terms of, uh, I just wrote this down because uh, this is in, in, her, in her book called um, uh, Up With Worship. She compares two kinds of communities in the church, and she's talking about fellowship. Okay, mm-hmm. I'm just going to read it to you because it just cracks me up because it's so true. Check it out. She talks about these two different kinds of communities in the church today. And she says, one she describes as a bag of marbles. The people come together for fellowship. They clack and they clatter and they glitter and they throw off light beautifully. And they scratch each other. They connect, but they don't mingle. The other ones, see that's not koinonia. But the other kind of community in the church she describes as a bag of grapes. Shake the bag around a little and it starts to drip. Look inside and it's not a pretty sight. But they're mingling. They're mingling. See, each life inside bleeds into the others. That's koinonia. That's wine. I love it. It could be. You could go that far with it. The idea is you shake up the grapes and it's it's a little bit... I mean, I heard from the pulpit this last week, you know, the, the word... Um, I have heard it before, but, but Richie said, uh, you know, it's not comfortable when the church is in your business. No business. <laughs> your business. Your business. Your business. But you see, koinonia means the church necessarily is in each other's business. Because we love each other and we're, we're, we have everything in common and we're, we're connected and we're Christ-centered and we're, 
you know, we're in process, of course, all of us, right? Yeah. But, but the koinonia is not a potluck. The koinonia is being in fellowship with one another because we have these things in common and we're there for each other. Man, it's like family. But it's hard. And it's, it, it's not pretty sometimes, right? Yeah. Everybody has experienced that. It's not pretty. And, and I've said this a bunch of times with Tyler and, and with, with, with Richie. You know, we, we, the three of us have given each other permission. I mean, we're the leaders of the church. We have to give each other permission to go all the way into each other's lives. Going where? All the way into each other's lives. You can ask me anything. Not you, Sally. (laughs) (laughs) But those two can. And how far do I let them in? No. No. Oh, no. Not yet. No. They have to suck it out of me sometimes. Yeah, that happened tonight. Yeah, it's very fresh on my mind. I came in, they took one look at my face, and, and the two of them just called me out. But was I going to was I going to offer it up? No, because I was a little more reserved. Anybody? Mm-hmm. A little reserved. I don't want you to get me. I don't want you all the way into my business. I'll let you part way in. I, I'll give you like ninety percent. I don't know that I've ever gone more. Maybe ninety five. But there's like I I don't. God's the only one that's been a hundred percent in my life. I've never let anybody a hundred percent in. I, I I have you. No. no, I don't know anybody that's let anybody in 100%. See, that's why it's a little bit messy. It's messy in there. But then they broke bread, too. And the breaking of bread was not only a potluck, but it was the communion meal. You see, because in the early church, what they did is they got together daily. Oh, man. Okay, I'm not suggesting that we start meeting daily. But what I'm saying is that's what they did, because this was all brand new. They got together daily, and they had a feast. They broke bread together, meaning they had a meal. And they also finished up that meal with communion in the remembrance of Jesus Christ out of obedience and worship. So this was a worship service. They worshiped the Lord out of obedience, took communion after they had a meal together. Well, it sounds like they almost had like a communion. They sold their, all their worldly goods and and lived together Mm -hmm. and shared it with those, whoever needed what. They did, but they didn't live together communally. But what they did is they acted communally because they didn't all just all of a sudden 3,000 people come to Christ that day and then they moved in with one another. That's yeah. not how it happened. No, they didn't have a tent city. Um, but my guess is some of them did because, you see, that was Jewish tradition. They have a kibbutz, right? right yeah. So my Jewish friend, um, you know, his family had a kibbutz and they lived in a commune. And there was, the, the families had one, one house. And when, when, when you got old enough to get married and have kids, you built on top of that house. And, then, right. and they would go up like three stories. And if there was enough kids, they would build a house next door, connected. So all the houses were connected. And it was a it was a, a family commune within a community of communes, you know, and so it was a big it was a big commune, if you will. So they would have been used to that here, but that's not what the Christians did. What the Christians did is they got together daily for prayer and breaking of bread, and they put all their money on the table because their money all of a sudden had nothing to do with their wealth. Their money had something to do with what belonged to God, and so they were interested in others first. It was very interesting. See, that's the communalness. It was a heart condition. It's like praying without ceasing is a heart condition. It's not necessarily a, it's not necessarily never talking to Marvin because you're always praying. It was a it was a condition of your heart. I'm always wanting to be connected with God this way. In everything I'm thinking, saying, and doing, it's a condition of my life. 
That's praying continually. And their communal breaking of bread was that way. In fact, Paul, they got out of hand. And in 1 Corinthians, remember, Paul rebuked the church and said, man, you've let this whole potluck thing get totally out of hand. And now Jesus isn't even in the center of it anymore. All you guys are doing is you're eating all the time. And poor Betty, poor Betty's coming in because her car is broken. She gets there a little bit late. You didn't even left anything for Betty. You didn't even give a rip about Betty. It's wrong. You know, he called him out, didn't he? He called him out and said, no, he said, you forgot to put Jesus first here. What are we doing this for? You know, I love that. It was always about others. <laughs> Putting others first all the time. That's what Jesus did. And that's what we're supposed to do. And then, of course, prayer is the last thing that they did. And that's the one thing I appreciate about this church. We pray. We get more comments about from visitors that say, well, you guys pray a lot around here. And I think we don't. <laughs> I think we should pray as a church more. But we should pray, 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 pray. That's the biblical construct here, and it's a command. He says, pray without ceasing. I mean, that's a condition of our heart. We should always be seeking the Lord for everything that we do. Not second, but first. We don't always do that, but that's what we're supposed to do. And we should be praying as individuals, as groups. We should be praying like this. We should be praying in church. Everybody should pray all the time. Not just the guy that gets the check at the end of the month. Everybody should be praying all the time. Ooh. But we find that hard because we're a bunch of grapes. It's a little messy in there sometimes. If I pray, they're going to know my stuff. No, it's okay. We should know each other's stuff. But it's a process. It's a process. And so those things are the cornerstone of what the church is all about. He goes on to say then that everyone was filled with awe, which is reverent wonder in verse 43. At the many wonders and signs that were performed by the apostles. Because they were filled with the Spirit and given giftings that apostles, quote-unquote, pastors, church leaders, ushers, readers, people that pray for offerings. See, we don't get some of those kinds of, of uh, giftings today because we don't need them. Not that we couldn't get them, but I'm, I, God could... Wes... God could give you the power to heal people tomorrow. Right. But it wouldn't be normative in the church today. Mm -hmm. Okay, It just wouldn't be normative. So you don't see that very often. And so then all they did was they got together because they had everything in common. Verse 44. Verse 45. They sold everything they had, all their possessions to give to anybody that had a need. Because their possessions all of a sudden as Christians were just a commodity to them. It didn't matter to them anymore what they had. Because it all belonged to God. And then in verse 46, they continued to meet together in the temple courts because the Jews were a little bit concerned because they used to do that in the sacrificial system and the priests sacrificed, right? So the early church, actually, there was a transition. We're going to end with this because the transition between the Old and the New Testament, they were, they, it didn't just happen overnight. They didn't just stop going to the temple every day and making animal sacrifices. That didn't just end immediately. There was a process. It took a little bit of time. And then obviously the last thing that they did in verse 47 was they were praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Now that is cool. Because the last thing that they did after all of these things that was, that was the cornerstone of what was happening in the church is they were praising God. And I think it's significant that Luke tells us that in this history. He tells us that last. The first thing was obedience. All this other stuff is in the middle. And then the last thing he tells us is, and they were all 
praising God like all the time. God is good. All the time. And all the time. Praise be to God for everything. The fact that we're breathing. Praise be to God. Amen? Amen. That's the early church, guys. That's what it is. And when we see that foundation, it's going to make all the sense in the world to us as we start looking at the signs and the wonders with what God did that Luke tells us about over the next period of time. We don't know the period of time because Luke in his writing generally summarized periods of time and he never tells us how much time it took. So I don't know how long Peter preached, nor do I know how long it took in between these intervals of some of the things that happened. I don't know after the 3,000 came to Christ when the next story that he's going to tell us in chapter 3, if you want to read chapter 3, we're going to go through that the whole chapter next weekend, plus some. But I don't know how long it took before these things started happening where the apostles were doing the same things that Jesus did. Healing people. Crazy things were happening, we would say today. <laughs> and actually, in some places in the world, these things still happen where God is still gifting people. Not normative for us. We don't see it very often or ever. But it's still happening in the church today. I love the first church. Pray about the first church and what God's teaching us and how important that is in, in the 21st church, this century. This church specifically. The whole church is when we pray. I, I was so blessed on Sunday. Thank you. I mean, seriously. I was so blessed to see God use you the way he used you on Sunday in this place. That was a supernatural act of God, sister. And we just need to pray that the first century church, in the important ways, biblically, comes back to the core. John Wooden, as a basketball coach, always said, you know, we win championships with the fundamentals. And we've been teaching the fundamentals in this church for seven years. And I hope, I told Richie... Tyler and I both recently at a meeting, you know what? Let's stay on the fundamentals for another seven and see what God does with that. We've got to stick with the fundamentals, you know, because that's how people come to know Christ and how we grow. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. Amen.